0: on those headphones. It's time for Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Main. Welcome to Naughty Talk with Sunny Lee Main, the podcast that explores all things kinky in a sexy and inclusive way. This show is intended for mature audiences aged 18 and up, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We believe in risk-aware consensual kink here on the show, so if you do try things mentioned on the show at home, know that neither the show nor the cast are responsible for any accidents, injuries, legal, or property damages that may occur while getting your kink on. Hi there. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Naughty Talk. I'm Sunny, and I have Hypnoster here with me again today, and we're going to talk a little bit about polyamory. Really excited to have you back on the show. How are you today?
1: I'm great. Glad to be here.
0: So we thought we would talk a little bit about polyamory today because while it's not a kink, there are a lot of folks in the kink and lifestyle communities who identify as polyamorous. There's a little bit of an overlap. I think it's worth discussing. And a really good way to start that conversation is really just to sort of even define what is polyamory and to talk about some resources. So, if this is a brand new concept for you, I really like the More Than Two website. It is also a book. The book is written by Eve Rickard and Franklin Vo. Um, I have mostly checked out the website, which is morethan2.com. And so this is their definition. The word polyamory is based on the Greek and Latin for many loves, literally poly, which is many, and amor, which is love. A polyamorous person is someone who has or is open to having more than one romantic relationship at a time with the knowledge and consent of all their partners. That part's really important. A polyamorous relationship is a romantic relationship where the people in the relationship agree that it's okay for everyone to be open or to have other romantic partners. It's the idea or practice of being polyamorous or having polyamorous relationships. So, that's their definition. I think that a lot of people have sort of personal definitions, uh, both for polyamory or the difference between polyamory and non-monogamy. Do you want to say how you sort of define it for yourself?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not something I've spent a lot of time kind of wordsmithing a definition of, That, But I think that the one that they give is pretty good, that it's about being open to loving more than one person at a time and being in a romantic and or sexual relationship with more than one person at a time.
0: I agree. And I I think that for me personally, the difference between polyamory specifically and non-monogamy is that non-monogamy is a wider umbrella and it might include things that are not the same as polyamory like swinging. It might include things like having um, sexual relationships with lots of people or more than one person where there isn't necessarily a romantic relationship or connection. So I think that non monogamy is just a little bit broader, and ethical non-monogamy being where all parties are consenting regardless of the arrangement. But personally, for me, polyamory definitely implies having a romantic connection or just a, a relationship that's consistent of some kind. I know some folks identify as aromantic, but still have meaningful relationships with other people, and that certainly could be part of polyamory, but different than non- monogamy as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think I would say that in my mind, it's not necessarily it being romantic or even sexual that makes it polyamory for me, but that there's a, a connection, an emotional connection of significance that feels like it goes beyond a good friend into a territory that's intimate in some way. And what exactly that is can vary. I mean, for me, in most cases, it's romantic or sexual or both, but it's, but I I think it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, I have one partner who we were in a sexual relationship that, and a power exchange relationship that kind of, petered out because they ended up unexpectedly moving across the country and that kind of energy of that connection and that play didn't work for us long distance and that felt okay to both of us and yet we still love each other deeply and are very close and definitely consider each other partners So it's one of those things that I think can be really squishy and that for me is sort of, well, it feels like a relationship, you know, capital R relationship. So I'm going to call it that.
0: Sure. And again, so many people do it different ways. Um, I personally feel like polyamory or being a polyamorous person is part of my identity in that just like my sexual orientation, I identify as pansexual. I feel like it's something that's very hardwired, sort of rooted in me. It's part of who I am. And even from my very early relationships, you know, I struggled for a long time falling in love with more than one person and really sort of navigating dating in a a world where monogamy was really prevalent. And I didn't at the time when I was, you know, younger and sort of starting relationships, I didn't know any polyamorous people. I didn't really have a community, um, for kink or for being queer. And so I definitely had a lot of heartbreak along the way because I would just meet wonderful humans who I would be, you know, romantically attracted to, um, and feel like I was if I was in a relationship at the time, I was sort of bound by that. And I even had, you know, experiences sort of as a young adult. um, Not that I'm old now. (laughs) But, you know, when I when I was first starting to have relationships where I was openly and honestly, dating more than one person at a time, and where I was upfront about it from the beginning, and I just knew that it was something that I wanted. And then where sort of as things evolved and got more serious, inevitably somebody sort of put the brakes on and said, okay, you have to choose. So, you know, I had a long period of my life where I felt like, okay, this is okay when things are casual, but if I really want to have a long-term relationship with somebody, that is not it's not going to be possible. It wasn't really until I had a sort of new awakening around kink and lifestyle and also met some polyamorous people that I realized, you know what, not everybody does it the same way. And this could be a long-term thing.
1: Yeah. And I guess for me, it kind of, kind of was similar. Not so much that I had the experience of falling in love or wanting to be involved with more than one person. Cause in my early romantic relationships that never really came up, but I also never really understood monogamy. Like I mean, I understood what it was, but it, it never seemed to me like the default didn't seem logical. It didn't kind of make sense, the default of monogamy to me, that it seemed to me like, well, why couldn't someone be involved with more than one person so long as everybody's okay with it?
0: while i feel like being a polyamorous person is part of my identity and it's something that's always been there i definitely think that the environment in which i was raised sort of colored my vision about what was okay or what was appropriate when i was very young and i grew up in a household where you know my parents were very open-minded for the the most part and really compassionate humans and so For example, you know, the idea of a person being queer was not something that I was ever raised to feel like was strange or unusual. And I was never raised in a way that made me feel like if that's who I was, I couldn't be honest about it. But I also grew up in a household where. My parents were very strict about sex in general. So while like adult relationships were okay, regardless of gender, um, they definitely didn't really want me to date at all. And, you know, when I was very young, I couldn't really watch things on TV that had sexual content. I could read whatever I wanted, but my media was very limited. And so it was a really bizarre contrast of people who were very tolerant of other humans, but also like very sort of sexually repressive in general. And, you know, coming out of that and um, going to college for the first time, I fell in love with a woman for the first time in my life. I had a long-term boyfriend at the time and I tried to convince the two of them like, hey, you know, like there are feelings here. We can all kind of do our own thing. And um, that was really the first time I sort of got burned by it, um, where they both said, no, you really have to choose. And I got my heart broken. And then it happened a second time around, you know, when I was in grad school, and I eventually ended up in a, a monogamous marriage. But because that relationship was built on trust and on love, and we both were so committed to the other person being happy, it was also a very vanilla marriage. My partner at the time said to me, you know, I'm really not interested in exploring kink. And I understand that that's something that you need. That's a part of who you are. And I really think you should explore it with somebody else. And that was sort of just a an eye-opening moment that this human loved me so much that without me having to ask for what I needed you know, they just suggested that that's something that I pursue. And so that was really the first time in my life. And I I started to do some research and I started to do some reading and to talk to some other people who did polyamory really the first time that I felt like it was maybe something that was okay to explore.
1: Yeah. And I also think it's worth saying that you are still married to this really lovely human and also polyamorous and that that is a transition that you were able to navigate successfully with a lot of conversation and a lot of work and a lot of thought, but that that is a thing that can happen.
0: It is. And, you know, I think just like some people are sort of hardwired to be polyamorous, some people are sort of hardwired to be monogamous and that's okay. The partner that I am married to chooses to just have one relationship, not because, you know, my partner has to, but because, That's just sort of a hardwired thing. Actually, several of my partners joke that like, there's a lot of me. You know, I have a lot of energy and, um, you know, I really like to spend a lot of time with people and both of my, my current partners right now really like to have a lot of alone time. And so. They both joke that they really like to kind of have like a half a relationship and it's not. They're very full relationships. They're not really half, but like, you know, to have that alone time, it's almost like their second relationship is with their interests and hobbies and that's okay. You can have sort of polymonogamous pairings as well that can work out. Yeah. I, and that's
1: the thing is I think really any of these kinds of family of ethically non-monogamous relationships, whether it's polyamorous or not can work in almost any form that everyone understands and agrees to. And that really the key thing is that everybody understands and agrees to it.
0: What advice would you give for somebody who was just starting to sort of dip their toes into the waters of polyamory?
1: Expect it to be hard. It can be wonderful. Don't get me wrong but it's a lot of work. And, you know, cause when you think about how important communication and emotional work is to any kind of successful relationship and how much work, any good relationship is, and now multiply that times, however many partners you're going to have and all of that needs to happen. But then sometimes there's a whole bunch of extra work about where those partnerships intersect with each other. And so it's not just, okay, I have two or three or however many monogamous relationships at the same time. And, you know, we can have these sort of widely flung, the term most people use is polycule to describe, you know, this network of my partner's and their partners, and their partners, and sort of how far out you go, you know, varies. And that can be absolutely wonderful. You know, we have a discord for sort of the core of my polycule that my triad and most of our partners are in. And we're all, you know, everybody's friends at least. And it's really, really lovely. It's our family. We actually call it the Ohana Discord, that it's our family. And we love it. But it also means that now, you know, if I'm thinking about scheduling something, you know, I have two partners I live with that I now have to coordinate with. But they also have to keep in mind commitments that they may have made to their other partners. And that's just kind of one example of it.
0: Definitely. And I, I think that the other piece of advice that I would give is having a new relationship is not a band-aid or a fix for one that that's broken. Um, you know, doing the work with your relationship that you have to sort of fix what's broken between you and decide whether you want to be with that person or not in the long run is totally separate from any other relationships. And, you know, if you really are incompatible in some way, if there's a lot of fighting going on, if you feel like you can't communicate or there's like a total lack of sexual satisfaction or whatever the the issue is, you know, adding a, a relationship into the mix is just an extra layer of complexity. It will not fix what's broken, you know between you and your existing person if you're already in a relationship when you sort of start out. So, you know, I think if you feel like you're a polyamorous person, mm-hmm. one of the the primary skills you're really going to need to have is communication and, you know, before you can think about adding additional relationships and assuming you're in one at the time, I think that, you know, working on relationship skills in general, like your ability to communicate openly and effectively, and to compromise and to meet in the middle and, and all of these things, they are just, you know, doubly, triply, quadruply how many partners you have important when you start adding other people into the mix. And so if those skills are not there, it's probably going to be a rocky road.
1: Yeah, I, I, that, that's absolutely true. And I think that there is one specific kind of challenge that sometimes polyamory can fix, but it's not about a relationship problem. If you have a wonderful relationship like Sunny did and does with her husband and also has a significant need that's not being met in that relationship, then that's sort of the one situation in my mind where sometimes, and certainly not always, adding another relationship can help you to meet that need. But I think it's important that you're doing it to meet a need that you yourself have, that you kind of own as your thing, and not because you know, you feel like you're not getting something that you quote unquote should be getting in the relationship you're already in.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, in my mind, having different interests than your partner and having things you know, this is like poly brain, (laughs) you know, but having, having things that are interests of yours or things that you want to pursue in your life that you and your partner don't necessarily want to share does not mean your relationship is broken. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, having polyamory in your life can allow you to explore things like in my case, kink that an existing partner is not interested in. But uh, what I really meant to say is that if there's something that is toxic or, unhealthy about a relationship and having separate interests or, or pursuing things that are different are not one, is not necessarily one of those things, then adding another relationship to the mix is not going to fix that toxic dynamic.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And And I would say if the relationship you're in now is feeling tenuous and you're new to polyamory, that is not the time to start exploring polyamory if you have any choice, do the work in the relationship you're in now to make it healthy and solid. And then have the conversation about, do we want to open this relationship in some form? If you're, if you're coming at it from a sort of, philosophical, I'm realizing that I think I'm polyamorous and want to explore this kind of way. If it is, if, if you're heading that way, because you've met someone and fallen in love with them, that's not the person that's in the relationship you're in now, and you want to explore both. It's not that that can't work, but tread carefully.
0: Yes, and I I think that when you're in an existing relationship and you're thinking about maybe exploring poly for the first time, it's important to decide, you know, whether the relationship you're in is going to continue to work for you separately from evaluating other relationships. Like you might decide that if you were in a relationship that started out with an agreement of being monogamous, you know, your partner may not be okay with you dating other people or being with other people. And, and that's their right and prerogative. They entered into a relationship that was monogamous and that was the arrangement. And so, you know, you both always have the opportunity of saying this is what I need to be happy and this is what we have and to decide if you're in or out. Um, But if you really love the person that you're with and, you know, you've made this commitment and they can't get on board with it, you know, I would really advise against, I think that sometimes people almost use polyamory as like a threat, like, you know, either to say, like, if you won't do this thing with me, I'll find someone else who will, or I'm doing this polyamorous thing, I've met this new person, and I am going to date them, and you have to be okay with that. And that's not really informed or enthusiastic consent. I think that, you know, you might have a conversation and say, listen, I really think this is part of my identity, and it's something that I would ideally like to pursue. And then there is a lot of conversation and work that has to be done. And you may not, you know, get to the place where you both agree, and then you both get to decide whether you are in or out. But having, you know, an already forming other relationship that's sort of hanging in the balance, and you know, it's just it makes things very messy
1: yeah and the other thing that I think is a huge pitfall that a lot of people fall into right away is trying to put limits on feelings. It's totally reasonable to negotiate and and appropriate to negotiate with a partner or partners that you're in a relationship with what is okay and not okay for you to do with other people makes perfect sense it's important part of consent it's really an important thing to do. However, a lot of people, when they're negotiating, sort of thinking about it abstractly, will suggest something like, well, I don't really mind if you fuck other people, but I don't want you to fall in love with anyone else. And sometimes, at first, if what you're looking for is a kind of playful, easy thing, that can seem like a reasonable thing. But a lot of people have found that you don't get to decide whether you're going to fall in love with someone, right? It's something that either happens or it doesn't. And there may be things that make it more likely or less likely for an individual. But I don't think anyone can ever guarantee that if they're connecting with someone at all, that they're not going to fall in love with them. And so, therefore, I think that's a really shitty thing to ask someone to do. And I think it's a very dangerous thing to agree to do.
0: I agree. And I I think that that's a really good segue into discussing some of the different sort of polystructures, because some people have relationships that are considered to be a hierarchy or hierarchical, where they're saying, this is sort of my primary thing primary relationship and anything outside that is secondary in some way. Now, whether that means for them that that primary relationship is going to get sort of priority, like for things like big events and birthdays and family interactions, um, or time or financial resources, or I'm only going to own property with this person or whatever it is, you know, they're, they're, can be this dialogue where people who are doing a hierarchical relationship sort of get into this rule making process. And I think I agree with you. I don't think that feelings are something that you can control. Like you feel the way you feel and those feelings are valid. And you can certainly say, for example, something like, okay, you know, we're only going to have sex without barriers fluid bonding within this smaller group to protect against STDs and everybody else, you know, we expect some use of, of prophylactic or, or barrier method protection. You know, those are the types of things that you can negotiate. But I think for me personally, I, and people do it different ways, and I'm sure there are healthy hierarchical structures, but I personally always felt kind of yucky about telling another human that I love that I feel like they are secondary or in some way, or any way. And there's this other model of sort of more of an anarchy, which is allowing relationships to become what they are meant to be without any restrictions. And some people take it to a big extreme where they don't even use labels, like they won't even differentiate between a friend where they have emotional intimacy and a a romantic partner. You know, and there's no right or wrong. But I think that there are On both ends some things that can be a little bit yucky and one of those things is sort of this couple privilege where especially where if there are like three people in the polycule and one leg of that is an existing couple kind of saying like we sort of make the rules here things like unicorn hunting where you know it's very common for a couple to be looking for a partner when they're venturing into polyamory for the first time and they're like okay we want you to come into our relationship and be involved with both of us equally and have equal feelings for both of us. And we don't want you to see anybody else. And, you know, to really kind of take agency away from that person. So I know that it's possible to do hierarchy and have it be healthy, but there are also some pitfalls there to look out for, especially when you're in that sort of negotiation rulemaking phase.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, my family is kind of, kind of hierarchical. You know, I, I tend to describe it as that I have a primary triad in that Yoshi, Panda, and I live together and effectively are all married, although obviously we can't be legally married. Yoshi and I are legally married, and we can't be legally married to Panda, but we don't really care that we, the three of us together are a household and that tends to come first for us in terms of a lot of logistical things but not in terms of anybody having veto power over anyone else's relationships which i think is really really important that i think sometimes people do these kind of intense hierarchical structures where the you know the primary partner can veto a potential secondary partner. And I really think it's unethical for partner A to have veto power over a relationship between partners B and C, that partner C does not have veto power over B and A. And that that's a real problem.
0: I agree. And I, I think that, you know, Polyamory is really a journey and it can look different at different times in your life. When I first sort of opened things up in my monogamous relationship, I had for a period of time, um, four partners who... You know, at the time I was just very, (laughs) Um, I don't even know what I I can say. Idealistic is a good word. You know, nobody is going to be secondary to anybody else and everybody should have equal time and equal attention. And what it turned into was me living out of a suitcase (laughs) and exhausted and like totally burnt out. And... um, you know, I think that there there is space for a little bit of hierarchy and healthy relationships. But I think what's important is just that everybody is being treated as, as human beings. And you're not trying to put sort of um, restrictions that are, you know, people refer to them as prescriptive, where you can't do this, because I don't want this other thing to happen, where you're trying to control feelings, or you're trying to sort of restrict the other relationships from developing because you're afraid something is going to happen in your own relationship. I feel like that's a really unhealthy dynamic. And now how my family sort of does it, you know, I have two partners right now and the three of us are a family, even though the two of them, I'll throw out one more term, metamore. You know, are romantically and sexually involved with me, but not with each other. So that would make them metamors to each other, um, the partner of my partner. But they do have a, a very close relationship, and that relationship is independent of their relationships with me. You know, we consider ourselves to be a family. We're living um, mostly under one roof right now, and you know, that's a we have this very sort of kitchen table, poly aspect where you know we're all comfortable in each other's space and where we look at things as a team and you know sometimes there's a little bit of play outside of those dynamics especially as I've been you know exploring HypnoKink in particular you know I've been doing some hypno play outside of those dynamics but I, I definitely you know consider I guess I could consider both of those people to be a, a sort of primary partner. And I think as long as you're defining it for the right reasons and you're treating everybody with respect, everybody's consenting, everybody has agency and the, the right to say whether they're in or out. I know that there are lots of people who identify as sort of solo poly or who like to be a, a quote secondary partner because for whatever reason, they feel like they can't commit to whatever their idea of a primary relationship is. And they really enjoy being able to have, you know, one or several partners where, you know, they have time to pursue these other things and where there's a, a sort of lesser degree of scaffolding, this idea of, of things that you're building. So pieces of scaffolding might be like legal marriages or owning property together or being financially entangled in some way. And these are things that sort of happen on a monogamous timeline or, you know, escalator of sorts, relationship escalator when you are building a life with more than one person, you know, realistically, you are going to have to draw some boundaries around some of those things, because things, you know, love is not a pie is my favorite saying love is not a pie, but time and resources can be limited. And so, you know, I I think that my view has definitely evolved over time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we should define relationship escalator, because I'm not sure how widely known that term is, but I think it's a really useful one. Go and for it. it it's the the concept that a lot of people have an expectation about how relationships work that they're going to continue kind of automatically moving on to the the next stage that you meet someone and you go on a date with them and you like them and you know maybe you kiss or maybe you make out and that if you stay in relationship with them, the expectation is that you're going to move from making out to having sex. Now, sidebar, that becomes a whole complicated definition about what, quote, having sex is. If your definition of having sex is putting a specific body part inside of another specific body part. And if that's not happening, it's not sex. I would really encourage you to think about expanding that definition. Um, but that's probably for another day to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, You meet someone, you kiss them, you make out with them, you fuck them, you start building deeper intimacy. Maybe you navigate, you start to, you know, introduce them to each other's friends, maybe introduce each other to family. And the idea is that the eventual outcome of that is that you're going to move in together and often that you're going to get married and often that you're going to have kids and that there's an expectation. That a relationship is going to move and, and different people have different expectations about the pace, but that like this is what's happening. And that once you enter the relationship, you have stepped onto an escalator that's going to bring you from one to the next, to the next, to the next. And in polyamory, I think for most of us, we just completely throw that out the window because it, for one thing, isn't practical, but for another isn't necessary in that we can have different kinds of relationships with different people. and maybe with some of those people, we're gonna want to live together and get married and you know, maybe have kids. I mean, not in my case, but you know, there certainly are polyamorous people who do, and that's fine. And maybe in other relationships, It's a deep and intimate and fulfilling relationship, and you don't ever want to live together. And that's totally
0: fine. Definitely. I think that if you can get away from this idea that an escalator is a defined thing and that the steps are specific, you can sort of give yourself the freedom to design the family structure that you want to have. And, you know, it can – if you can dream it, it can be so (laughs) – I belong to a polyamory support group. It was really helpful to me along with all of the reading and discussing and learning that I did before I entered into a second relationship, you know, and eventually a third and fourth and (laughs) cycled back down to two. But I think that if you release yourself from that idea, there's definitely some freedom in it. I am child free by choice. Both of my partners choose to be child free but I have been in relationships with partners in the past who have had children with other partners. And I have just sort of being part of the support group, seen so many different family structures. So it's not to say that if you're going to be polyamorous, it has to be adult relationships only, and nobody can ever have children or family that, you know, I think that it can look so many different ways. And all of those ways are really lovely. So it's really been a joy to me to kind of see how different people do it and how they can find happiness and family and love in lots of different ways. And I definitely recommend that if you're new to polyamory, finding a community of polyamorous people who have been there and been doing it for a while. I mean, there are always pitfalls. Sometimes, you know, you might join a community where there's some toxic information being spread, but I think that overall community and more information is a good thing. So last year with one of my partners, um, we experienced illness. One of my partners was diagnosed with cancer. And, you know, being a young person myself, um, I have an age gap with my partners, but being a young person myself, I had not really thought very hard on things like life insurance, on things like, you know, planning for the worst possible event or the, the loss of a partner. And I had to explore those things. You know, for the first time, and I am really grateful that my partner is currently in remission, but it definitely made me examine things that are traditionally scaffolding in a a relationship, things like health insurance, things like, you know, how do you plan for a disaster? And, you know, my little family definitely banded together. We did not always live under one roof, and for the past year, we have been doing that for most of the week, and I think it's just a testament to... You know, our communication skills and our general love for each other, including, you know, the the love between my two partners that we were able to make that work because moving in with somebody new is not always an easy thing, especially when you're in a small space that was not intended to have three people and two dogs in it. (laughs) Um, the only two that don't get along are the dogs, but it made me think about how if you have more than one relationship that's important to you and you want to have scaffolding with more than one person, you can. Have it, you know, whether it's maybe you're not legally married, but you could choose to do a ceremony. I had a hand fasting ceremony with a partner that I'm not legally married to, or whether you choose to do life insurance or change how you organize your finances so that in an emergency, you know, more than one person is your, your beneficiary. You know, these are things that you often talk about in a monogamous relationship when you're thinking about getting married. And they are things that you can explore with more than one person if it's what you want. You might also find it remarkably freeing, you know, to have a structure where you don't share those things with all of your partners. So it can be done.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there are lots of tools, but it's a lot, there's a lot of that stuff that comes by default with marriage. That does not come by default with polyamorous relationships.
0: And I I think that before we sort of wrap up our our first conversation about polyamory, I'm sure there are going to be more moving forward with the show. I thought it might just be worth discussing briefly coming out and sort of the implications of being in a polyamorous relationship. And I know that it you know, there are lots of different types of coming out. People often think about it sort of in terms of, you know, gender identity or sexual orientation. But um, many people feel sometimes that they actually have to be a little bit closeted or completely closeted about polyamory, because maybe it's not something that, you know, they feel their job or their family would accept. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I think you have to be careful about it, because you can't take it back. You know, once that information is out there, you don't control it anymore. And so it sucks to be closeted in a lot of ways, but sometimes that is a choice that's reasonable for people to make. And to just sort of be gentle with yourself about how you want to do that and to think about you know, how do you think people are going to react? And do you care? And maybe you don't, right? Maybe you don't care. That I was pretty sure that my family was not going to have an issue with it, that they might be confused, which they were, but it wasn't going to be an issue at all. If that was what I wanted to do, and it made me happy. But there definitely are people where that's not the case. And I have friends who have decided that they were just not going to tell their family uh, that they're poly. And that's okay. And I also have friends who have said, yep, I'm going to tell them. And if they don't accept me, I'm going to completely cut them out of my life. And that's a decision that you can make that may be a good decision for some people in some situations, but I would not take it lightly.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, for me personally, my family... I think, at least with the structure that I have now with my current partners, my family is the most open-minded. But because I was married first in a monogamous relationship with a person who has a very conservative family and who I knew would not tolerate the news well... There was the issue of I would like to be open with my family, but there's a lot of overlap at like family gatherings and things. My family interacts with my partner's family on a regular basis, and it might be very hard to tell, you know, sort of one group of people and not the other. So I first kind of came out to my closest friends, my chosen family. And that was really liberating because, you know, I live far enough away from my family that I don't see them every day. And so I was able to have a life where I had people who I cared about in my home and, you know, more than one partner could be there and that was okay. But I came out first to my chosen family in terms of friends that were just my friends, not friends that I shared with my partner. And then we sort of shared with our core group of share friends next. And I actually came out. At the job that I was at at the time as being polyamorous with some of my colleagues before even my immediate family, because I was working at an agency at the time that was very focused on accepting all family types. And so I felt like it was a safe space to be open about it. And it may be a little step back, but it's not something I've disclosed at my current agency because I'm not really sure it's new to me what the culture there is yet. And I don't want it to impact my job. But I really, you know, in the end came out to my own family during the time when my partner was struggling with cancer, because it became impossible to hide it anymore. Because when social plans and things are on the table, and you're constantly having to say, no, we can't see anybody, we're in a pandemic, we need to be isolated, because I'm living with a partner who's immune compromised and has cancer. Or no, I can't come to your special event, because we're doing, you know, radiation therapy that day, it it becomes something that was really sort of impossible to hide. And I knew that I, I needed to be there for my partner and was pretty sure that at least my immediate family could could process it. And I was mostly worried about, you know, what they would think about my relationship with my, my married partner because they really love him and have gotten to know him. And I think that I was worried that they might think that this was something that I had sort of forced on him. Um, or pressured him into or worried that he was okay. And they, they really sort of exceeded my expectations in this crying phone call (laughs) where I was like bawling my eyes out. And they probably, um, you know, immediately thought I was going to tell them that someone was dying. And at the time I thought somebody was. So it really took a big life event to get me there. And, and I'm so glad that I did, even though we're not open with all of our extended family and we're not open with one of my partner's families. Um, We are open with the other. It it took a while to get to that place.
1: Yeah. And it's tricky. You know, it's just tricky. And this sort of goes back to the thing we said early in this conversation about how it is complicated when you have multiple partners. And, you know, now you have multiple partners, parents and families to deal with. And, you know, the, you know, where do you go for the holidays? And how do you divide up that time? And, you know, all of those questions can be even more complicated. You know, it just is something you have to think about.
0: Absolutely. And I I think to just kind of wrap things up, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, you know, maybe I'm Polly and I... I want to explore that. Or maybe I'm poly, but this sounds like an epic should show disaster and so much work and I would never want to be involved in it. I just want to say it's also one of the most, you know, rewarding things in my life. So, you know, for all of the extra communication and work and challenges, you know, there's extra support, extra love extra pairs of hands when you need them, extra roofs over someone's head, if that's something that's necessary. You know, it's just, it's more of everything. It's more of the the ups and the downs. And so while we've talked a lot about some of the pitfalls and some of the, the work that goes into it, I absolutely don't regret being my authentic self and, and living in a way that I feel like is is right for my identity. Do you have any last thoughts before we kind of wrap up this topic?
1: Just that I would agree with everything that you just said. That I absolutely love my life, that the life I have now is not anything I could have even begun to imagine in my wildest dreams, you know, when I graduated from college, that it just never occurred to me that that was, that polyamory was something that might be right for me. And it's really, really right. And it makes my life so much richer and so much better. And, you know, it's Dr. Liz Powell, who wrote a, an excellent book called, I think it's called Building Open Relationships, said, and I'm not quote, this is, this is a paraphrase, um, that You know, it's not about trying to get to the point that it's easy. It's about getting to the point where the good is so good that when it's hard, there's just no question that it's worth it.
0: That's really lovely. Absolutely. I think that when you have relationships where what you are putting into them, whatever that may be, is being reflected back at you and filling you back up and things are balanced you know, you just kind of have this feeling of rightness, just like you might in a monogamous relationship that, you know, I love my life and I love the people that are in it and I wouldn't change it for the world. Thanks for talking about this with me. Really excited to have you back on the show. And I know we're going to be hearing more from you in future episodes. And so we'll, we'll wrap up for now and we'll move on to our next guest. All right. Next up, we have Panda. I'm really excited to have her back. We're going to be doing our Kink 101 segment on rope. Really excited. How are you today?
2: I am great. How are you? I love this topic.
0: Well, thanks. I'm excited too. So there are lots of different ways that you can approach talking about rope. It's actually not something that I have any expertise in. And so I'm excited that you're going to be talking about it with me today. And my understanding is that you are primarily a rope bottom and that we're going to sort of approach this from a bottom perspective, right? Yes. Okay. And hopefully, you know, down the line, we'll also have someone on to talk about rigging from that side of things, but, um, and also maybe segments about other types of bondage. But for today, you know, there's plenty to talk about just for rope from the bottom's perspective. So let's just kind of start with what draws you to rope play? Why do you love it? Why would anyone want to do it?
2: I think I became drawn to rope from like the ideal fantasy perspective. Um, I specifically remember having dreams when I was like a teenager about like these impossible situations where like, I was in these, like, suspensions that wouldn't have logically made sense or something like that. Uh, And suspension is really what kept me interested and drew me into rope. Uh, But suspension is also a very advanced level of rope. So, like, I really needed to, like, take a step back, change my expectations and reality and, like, understand that I could get there for that it was going to take a while. Uh, So I just started playing with people who did it. Uh, The art aspect of it is something that I really enjoy. I really love having pictures taken. I love seeing all the beautiful patterns and ways they contort the human figure. Uh, And I really enjoy it for like art for art's sake. But from a bottoming perspective, I really enjoy the more masochistic aspects of it. I really enjoy the predicaments that it can put you in uh, where you might need to be uncomfortable in some way. Or if you shift, you're uncomfortable in a different way. And I love the endorphin release of rope as the rope is untied. That's where like it all really comes together for me. So like as the rope is put on, I already begin to feel my head space kind of slipping away, which a lot of us call rope space. Very similar to a subspace, if that's something you're familiar with as a concept. Uh, And then as the rope comes off, when we're finishing up the scene, as those tensions start to unwind and I have free use of my body again, is when I just get flooded with these super happy, fun chemicals Uh, And that is one of my favorite forms of masochistic feeling.
0: Cool. So I want to just take a step back and touch on some of the things that you said for some of the newer folks. So rope bondage, I'm going to go ahead and sort of define as any act of restraining part of the body or tying part of the body with rope. But when it becomes suspension, I would say is when the rope is sort of load bearing with body weight. So where some part of the body is being lifted.
2: Sorry. Yes. Uh, Suspension in itself is really just if the entire body is off the ground. Uh, So even if that's like an inch that is being like an inch off the ground and being completely held up by rope, then that qualifies. (laughs)
0: And also, I mean, would you consider, let's say somebody's hands are bound above their head and their toes are just sort of barely brushing the floor. So where they don't have full control or where the rope is holding some weight, would you still consider that to be suspension?
2: Uh, That's considered a partial suspension, which a lot of us in the community just call it partials. Uh, So there are really like three different, three separations. So there's floor work, which is where you're just tying the person on the floor. They can be like laying down, sitting, standing, but like the floor is supporting your weight. So that's floor work. Uh, Partial suspension. Partial suspension is when a part of you is load bearing, uh, but part of you is also still being supported by the floor. So there's kind of like an imbalance of equilibrium going on. And then full suspension is when, all of you is off the
0: floor. Got it. Um, that definitely clarifies things. Again, you know, rope is, is not one of my things. So I think that the listeners will really find that useful if they're also new to rope. Let's start with a little bit of the sexiness. Tell us a little bit about a sexy rope encounter you've had.
2: Oh, there's so many. <laughs> uh, my girlfriend in Virginia uh, is my primary rigor or was my primary rigor when I was living near her. Uh, and a rigor is the person who is doing the tying. She and I have done a lot of crazy rope adventures together, many of which have been outdoors. Uh, so on one particular birthday of mine a few years ago, uh, she wanted to do something really special. And leaned into my love of making art for art's sake and also still included the like sadism, masochism aspect of our dynamic. So we brought several changes of clothes for me, a bunch of her rope, including what we would call trash rope, uh, which is rope that we don't mind getting dirty or getting destroyed, and did a couple different outdoor scenes and photo shoots so we did uh we went to the appalachian trail in a little secluded section where we were pretty sure we weren't going to run into other people for part of it i was wearing this beautiful like black flowy dress and we did a crazy partial suspension where there were a few trees like near each other so i i was being pulled one way with rope in my hair, tangled up in my hair, and my hair was being pulled away from me by being tied to that tree. And in the other direction, I had an ankle tied to another tree, and (laughs) there was a single rock in which I was standing on, uh, which made it, quite difficult to maintain balance that really put a strain on that leg uh it was such a hot lovely ouchy predicament for me and she (laughs) she messed with me for some time in various forms while i was there of pulling on the rope in certain ways, which always intensifies the feeling or can change your predicament level. There was like a controlled element of fear for me where sometimes she would mess with my standing leg and would always be there to catch me. If my standing leg gave out, uh, which did happen one or two times, but we're very experienced players. So that was something we were comfortable with. Uh, And then she finished that, (laughs) by untying my ankle, but leaving my hair rope tied to the tree. And that I had to free myself in order to go get my reward, which was in the form of dark chocolate Kit Kats, which she knows I love. (laughs) So she stood out of range of me eating some of my dark chocolate Kit Kats (laughs) and and teasing me with it.
0: I want to say I've actually seen some of those pictures and it it really was a lovely moment. (laughs) So obviously we've talked about in your stories, some more advanced concepts, some things that definitely shouldn't be tried without experience at home, but it is a a really nice illustration of where you can go. If you spend the time to learn how to do it safely. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've mentioned the masochistic aspect of being a rope bottom multiple times rope can be painful. And some people really like that or uncomfortable. And some people really like that too. Mm -hmm. I know I talked a lot
2: about uh, being rope being painful um, and like the masochistic experience of that, because that's my preferred experience, but that does not have to be yours. Rope does not have to be painful. It can be a sensual, intimate, lovely experience of feeling supported, of feeling held, of just being held down or constricted in a way that's not painful while they are doing other things. Uh, and that for some people, it's more of a tool than like the main event of a scene. I am coming from a place where I am a rope bunny, which is somebody who loves rope, loves doing rope for rope's sake, and enjoys like that being the main event of a scene.
0: But things can go wrong. So since we're kind of addressing our, our beginner folks here in our Kink 101 segment, do you want to talk a little bit about what can happen if things aren't done safely, done well? Maybe a little cautionary tale?
2: Uh, Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so it's important to remember in this that some people would consider rope edge play because you can do permanent physical bodily harm to someone if you are not tying correctly or don't have knowledge of how to work with that body type or just something happens. Ropes sometimes slip Uh, bodies sometimes move in a way that we did not expect it to so it's always super important number one to have safety shears on hand with you just in case you ever need to cut someone out of the rope Uh, so that's just caveat before I even get into anything else
0: Well, you actually had told a story at one point about having an accident with some nerve damage involved. Do you want to say anything about that?
2: Yes, I was doing floor work a long time ago uh, when I was much younger and didn't have as much agency with a previous dominant of mine. It included a tie called Fudimomo, which is where your calf is bound to your thigh Uh, So it makes kind of like a frog leg type picture if you're thinking about it. Uh, So my legs were both bound that way and my arms were both bound in a similar fashion so that I was really just on my knees and my elbows. And we had a prolonged sexual scene that way. Uh, It was very hot and very fun at the time, but partway through that scene, I mentioned to my dominant That um, I was a little concerned about my legs, and that like it was starting to feel a little bad. Um, Like I was just recognizing the shifting of the pain, and she didn't really address it in the moment, and was like, "Oh, like it's fine. It'll be okay. Like you're all right." Because I'm into being pushed, and so at the time was like, "Okay, that's fine. Like this is hot." And then afterwards, uh, one of my legs was actually asleep for several hours. And for a few years after that, that specific leg actually like fell asleep much easier than my other one did. Uh, And so I recognized that there was probably some nerve damage there and that I was fortunate that it wasn't more than that.
0: Because sometimes people don't recover from nerve damage. Sometimes the harm can be permanent, right?
2: Absolutely. And there are just some no no places for tying in general where you shouldn't be like having certain parts of the torso or certain body parts be that load bearing because they're just not meant to handle it or could potentially injure like internal functions, internal organs. Uh, similarly to like kind of impact 101, where there are some places you don't hit there are certain ways in which you should not tie.
0: And can you say something about, you know, because we're not going to get into tying specific knots or anything today, but as the rope bottom, what are some things that you need to watch for? What are some red flags? What types of awareness do you need to have to contribute to the safety of the scene?
2: I very firmly believe in bottom agency and active bottoming as Important things that you can have to support the scene. So, knowing yourself and knowing your body is really critical if you're going to be a rope bottom and especially if you're going to do more advanced things. Um, So, I would definitely stretch beforehand. Uh, Maybe if it's appropriate, ask the person who's doing the topping if. There's an idea of the tie that they have, so you know what body parts to stretch more of, or like what body parts will need the most attention. Knowing what physical limitations in like normal meat space your body has can be really important to communicate to the top. So, for instance, I know that my lower back normally gives me problems, and that I'm not very good at sitting for long periods of time with my back being unsupported. And that's a way in which a lot of people tie sometimes, especially to like prepare for a suspension. So I need to let my top know that that position is not going to work for me. And that I need like, uh, like a pillow husband or to be up against a wall or some version of support uh, for my girlfriend that sometimes meant even Uh, just using her body to anchor my back while she was tying something else. Uh, And that's perfectly fine. And there are definitely signs while you're in rope that you should look out for. It's very important as a bottom to be able to communicate when something is tingling or going numb. Not even necessarily to say that it needs to stop immediately, but it's it's definitely something to watch out for. Uh, So when that happens to me in rope, I will usually let my top know, Hey, just so you know, my right hand is starting to tangle. I can probably only sustain this for another five minutes and then I need to come out. Uh, When you are starting out in rope, I would let your top know immediately when something is tingling or starting to go numb and let them make that call because you may not know yet how long your body can sustain positions I am only comfortable giving a time frame because I have a lot of experience being in rope and pretty much know what my body can handle. And my communicating like that is only something that I've really developed in the past like year or two. Before that, I would just say like, "Hey, my hand's going numb. I think we need to stop." Or "I think we need to stop soon," or that we need to change the position. Just because something is happening to your body that's uncomfortable or that you need to get out of doesn't mean the scene entirely needs to stop, but it does mean that you need to adjust what is happening for sure.
0: And I just want to mention for our listeners who might be new to kink in general that a lot of these principles really apply to any kind of kink. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. I think it can be a common misconception that if you are the bottom, you don't necessarily have any agency or have any say. And that's not the case. You really need to be openly and honestly communicating about your limits. If you don't know your limits yet, communicate that. You know, this is a new thing to me. I don't know where my limits lie. Let's take it slow. Mm -hmm. You also should be aware that it's okay to ask a new partner who says, Hey, I'm experienced in this thing, or I want to try this advanced thing, to say things like, Have you ever done this before? What was the outcome? You know, to sort of vet them a little bit because anybody can say, I'm experienced in X, Y, Z. And so when you're dealing with something that can cause serious bodily harm, especially anything that's edge play anything that can cause injury, you know, you're well within your rights to say, have you done this before? What's your experience? How did you learn? You know, to ask these kind of questions before you even attempt to play at all.
2: And if you do ask those questions and that person is offended or bothered that you're asking them, I would take that as a pretty serious red flag, at least to do those activities with this person. I think a really important step of vetting can also be asking if they have references or asking who else they play with and just double checking with those people. Like, Hey, do you feel safe with this person? Uh, Have you done this activity with this person before? And did you feel good about it?
0: Excellent. So I think we've given folks a little bit of an idea about what it's like to be a rope bottom. We've touched on some of the risks that can happen, Um, some of the things that you can do to enhance safety. This is not by any means a complete and comprehensive list. It's a little bit of an overview. And I definitely advise anybody who is venturing into any kind of new kink for the first time, Um, or entering into rope play for the first time to take a class to do some reading to be mentored by a person who knows what they are doing. And so Panda, if people want to learn more about rope and rope safety, do you have anywhere you could send them?
2: I would highly recommend if you're serious about looking into rope, uh, shibari study, which is an online kinky ropes course. They're I know are probably lots of classes also on like kink Academy, if those videos still exist somewhere. And even though we are currently in the COVID times, there are usually a fair amount of classes on rope at conventions, either virtual or in person, Uh, depending on the town you are in, they could have rope groups often called rope bites. Uh, So I would just see... If maybe on like Fet Life or something, if there is one close to you.
0: That is wonderful information. And I really hope our listeners find it useful. Thank you again for talking to me about this today. And I'm really excited to continue to have you on the show in the future.
2: Thanks, buddy.
0: Yay. Yay. <laughs> All right. I've got Mac here with me today and I'm excited to talk about something a little bit edgier. That Mac has some expertise in, and that is knife play. Now, Mac, I know that you and I have dabbled in knife play together a few times, but you personally have done quite a bit of it, right?
3: Hey, Sonny. It's good to be here. Yes, uh, you are right. Uh, I have done quite a bit of knife play uh, of a variety of different sorts.
0: Now, that includes both play with cutting off clothing, but you actually take it to a little bit more of an extreme sometimes. You've done some stuff with small punctures, shallow cuts and scratches in actual skin. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, there's kind of uh, two realms of knife play. There's just the the fear-based knife play, and then there is the pain-based knife play.
0: So before we get too far into it, I think it's worth saying that in terms of knife wielding, you have a really advanced skill set. Can you speak to that some?
3: Yeah, I I grew up uh, hunting and fishing and hiking and backpacking. And uh, I'm currently an outdoor guide, have been for over a decade now. So yeah, I, uh, obviously skills with a knife come integral to the job there. And then about five or so years ago, I started teaching survival skills, which is an entirely new set of knife skills there as well.
0: So I think it's safe to say that you know your way around a knife. But accidents can happen with knife play. It is very dangerous. It is edge play. And you also have some very advanced first aid skills. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, in order to be an outdoor guide in um, pretty much any state that I'm aware of, you need at least uh, advanced first aid, if not more. And a lot of guides, myself included, are actually wilderness EMTs.
0: Now, that is actually a little bit more advanced than a regular EMT in that you get training for survival in wilderness settings where medical care might not be available, So that would extend to even things like placing sutures, is that right?
3: Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of different skills that you learn that are not available to kind of the standard EMT, one of which is uh, suturing, another is um, reducing dislocated joints, so on and so forth.
0: So for me personally, knife play had always been a hard limit, but after you and I exchanged some erotica while planning a capture fantasy scene there was some stuff in there about knife play and I decided I was really intrigued and I asked you to explore that with me a little bit. So it's not something that I do with any other partners, but I I felt safe in that moment knowing that you have some really specific skills in that department. And we ended up having a very hot scene that involved you cutting away my lingerie, um, but not cutting any skin. And it was really hot. And I think that it's important to talk about negotiation for this type of scene. Uh,
3: absolutely, negotiation is critical. Uh, you know, you need to to talk about what type of knife play you're both interested in, what the limits are in terms of, you know, this is okay, this is not. And in fact, when we were playing in in this particular scene, we had to negotiate which articles of clothing were okay to cut off and which were not.
0: Right. So, I mean, several realms of discussion, realms of negotiation to be had here. Number one, in my mind, being things like is the knife actually going to be in play at all? Or is it just going to be something that, for example, is referenced, but maybe sitting on a table and maybe never picked up, maybe never even brought physically into the play space? So, you know, threats about using the knife that sort of thing without actually touching it, handling it, bringing it close to, you know, the physical play space, um, but maybe having it visible. Or maybe you agree that the knife can be within so many feet of your body, but not make any contact, you know, leading up to things like cutting clothing, but not making contact with skin, You know, not in my realm of play or something that I enjoy, but some people do enjoy actually having uh, their skin touched or cut with the knife. And, you know, that's just one aspect. You might want to talk about different body parts. What else might you negotiate in a knife play scene?
3: Well, for example, um, you know, certain partners that I've had have been okay with having the knife against the skin. In some locations, but for example, nowhere near the face or nowhere near the eyes or nowhere near the throat. I mean, just some examples there.
0: Right. And I mean, that speaks to negotiating different body parts. You might also negotiate what kind of threats can be made or kind of references to the knife can be made. So, for example, I personally don't want anything near my face um, or my eyes, but I also don't want any verbal threats of the knife coming towards my face or towards my eyes. I personally find that triggering. So you might negotiate both where the knife can be in the scene, what it can have physical contact with, and what kind of language can be used.
3: Hmm, That's a good point. That's definitely there too.
0: Now, along with the negotiation points that are specific to knife play, like any type of BDSM play, you're also going to want to negotiate things like safe words. So whether you're doing something really basic, really beginner, or whether you're doing something really edgy like knife play, those basics of obtaining enthusiastic consent, deciding on safe words, boundaries for the scene, what can and can't take place, all of those things are really important. And I know that we're not talking about blood play in particular, but sometimes knife play, if there is any cutting of the skin involved, or even if an accident occurs, can bring blood into the play space. So I think it's also worth discussing, you know, having a conversation with your partner about health and wellness in general you know blood like other body fluids can carry pathogens maybe it's important for everybody to get tested before you play i mean that's something i advocate with any type of play having that conversation um but also beyond testing just discussing what types of things you're going to do to keep the scene safe if there is blood involved things like nitrile gloves for example does the person have a latex allergy how are you going to deal with any body fluids that might be part of the scene now, that sounds a little bit scary to some folks, I think, um, really exciting to other ones. But let's say somebody has an interest in knife play, but they, like the average person, do not have the same skill set that you have either with wielding a knife or with first aid. And they think, I really want to have a scene like that, but I don't want to take the risk. What can they use instead of an actual knife?
3: Oh, wow. There's there's a variety of different household objects that uh, you can use. For example, the handle of a fork or a spoon, uh, that cold metal feel against the skin is very similar.
0: And I imagine with a, a blindfold, you know, that might still produce a very similar sensation to the non-sharp side of a blade.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are also wooden knives out there as well that you can use for training purposes, like martial arts studios and whatnot, sell them.
0: Well, I mean, you can use any kind of a a non-sharp item to mimic a blade, but you can also use hypnosis. I know that HypnoStory previously told a story about using a hotel key card, um, and using hypnosis to help the subject believe that that key card was, in fact, a knife. And with hypnosis, in fact, you don't even need to have an object in your hand. You can just use an imagined or visualized blade.
3: Mm, that's a good point. That's a good one.
0: So, again, very edgy, risky potential type of play, but a lot of people do like it. And so I'm really glad we're talking about it. This is not intended to be a how-to guide. Definitely recommend that anybody who's going to engage in any kind of edge play take a first aid class. You don't have to be an EMT to take a first aid class, whether that's through the Red Cross or whether you're doing something like tactical trauma care, which does cover more advanced types of wounds you know, just be knowledgeable, be safe, make sure that you learn from somebody who knows what they're doing. Or if you don't have the skills, find a way to have that same feeling and you're seeing that same role play without actually bringing something that can cause harm like a knife into the mix.
3: And I think, uh, Sunny, to go along with that, I think be prepared is another one. I know you touched on it, but definitely making sure that Anytime you have a knife in the scene anywhere, even if it's never going to touch skin, to make sure that you have the first aid supplies necessary just in case something happens because life is unpredictable.
0: All right. So safety and negotiation discussion a little bit out of the way. I think it's worth just talking about why even pursue this sort of play. What do people get from it? So tell us a little bit about why you love it.
3: Well, for me, you know, being the the top in these scenes, uh, it really satisfies my inner sadist because he either gets to feed off the pain if, you know, uh, biting into skin is actually in there or feeding off the fear. So either way, he gets a, a good jolt and is pretty happy for a while.
0: And I guess for me, like any type of edge play what you're getting from it is a little bit of extra thrill that comes along with the associated risk. That's why it's called edge play. And I definitely think that I am somebody who in general enjoys things like CNC, consenting non-consent. So I definitely think that adding something like a knife to the scene brings an extra element of control where there is a total power exchange because of the implied threat. And again, the threat is consensual and negotiated, and not a real one. But within the role play, it does um, it does bring a little thrill to the scene.
3: Yeah, definitely.
0: All right, that concludes our segment on knife play, and also our season one, episode one. Thanks as always for listening to Naughty Talk. Our show is available on most popular podcast platforms. For updates, to submit a request to be a guest on the show, to write in with questions for our hosts, or request lifestyle advice head over to the show's page at com. You'll also find information about my novels, including my Turn the Key series, which are dark erotica with themes of hypnosis, BDSM, and sometimes a little bit of magic. All books feature different kinks and are queer inclusive. I hope you've enjoyed the show and you join us again next time.